Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and next to me is my colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you doing today? We're approaching earnings season now, and it's a really interesting time of the year, so I'm, I'm excited. Great. And uh, today comes another conversation run by one of our friends at Investing by the Books website, Christian Billinger. Who is he? Christian has a long career as an investor and currently manages his own family money in the investment company Billinger Förvaltning, where he focuses on finding stable long-term compounders. Um, he is a member of MOI Global, uh, which I am as well, and I highly, highly recommend everybody to check um, check out MOI Global. Uh, they have, uh, I mean, great uh, featured investors such as Howard Marks, Tom Gaynor, and Guy Spear, and Christian is featured among them. Yeah, we'll put uh, his interview there in the show notes for sure. And uh, who is the guest that Christian has talked with? So on the other line is uh, Professor Lawrence A. Cunningham, uh, who is one of the most prominent authors of investing books, and especially focused on Berkshire Hathaway and uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, we discussed one of his books, The Essays of Warren Buffett, in episode 7. Uh, and besides writing, he's a professor at the George Washington University, a columnist for Market Watch, a trustee of the Museum of American Finance, and also vi- vice chairman of the fantastic vertical software conglomerate, Con- Constellation Software, in Canada. Yeah, and what is the topic for today's conversation? The starting point is Cunningham's uh, book, Quality Investing, Owning the Best Companies for the Long Term, which was published in 2015. Uh, He wrote it together with the UK investment fund, AKO Capitals, portfolio managers, Torkel Eide and Patrick Hargreaves. And the book describes the philosophy behind the school of quality investing. The authors lay out a great toolbox and go through a few do's and don'ts. Also, they provide a lot of case studies of great businesses and how these fit the different patterns described. Quality investing is definitely a favorite book of mine, and uh, I believe the approach can be very profitable and quality businesses is something that we look at a lot at Red Eye and in our uh, premium offering, our topics portfolio, we have many of those. Uh, and I think um, if you know how to identify quality companies and what enables them to outperform over time, you can be a very successful investor. So that and much more in today's special episode, where Christian Billinger talks with Professor Lawrence Cunningham. So thank you so much uh, for for taking the time uh, to to speak today. Um, and you know, I, obviously, I guess to most people, the, including myself, you're you're certainly sort of best known for all the all the work you've done on Berkshire and 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 I guess more recently on the on the quality shareholder initiative. But I I wanted to discuss this book quality investing um, because I think it's such a wonderful book and it's it's certainly you know it's been very meaningful to myself and I know it's also it's had a very sort of um, you know it's been re- it was received very well in certain sort of um, investor communities so I know Dan Loeb for instance uh, you know he says it's mandatory reading at third point and um, and so I, I, I just love the book and it, it's just such a great tool, toolbox I find in terms of how to identify these companies and things to sort of look out for, et cetera. So I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is really, you know, the book came out about five years ago, I think, in the UK. Do you, do you feel that uh, the, 
the sort of conclusions in there, et cetera, are equally valid today? Or are, are there, there are things you would have sort of, you would change or amendments you would make? So for instance, I guess the, the shareholder structure conversation, perhaps, I know you've, you've spent a lot of time on that recently, is one that isn't quite as sort of, doesn't take up as much space here. So are there things you'd amend in there? Well, I do think it has withstood the test of time overall, uh, five years on. And, and I think um, it was in some ways a, a traditional or conventional uh, analytical approach to investing that I think has a lot of antecedents, a lot of predecessors. So it's um, uh I think it's in that sense, it draws on a, on a classical tradition. So I think it will have legs for, for many years to come. Yeah. But uh, like anything, it's it's not complete and it's not perfect. And um, I think if we were to rewrite it today or write a second edition, uh, we, we would probably emphasize some additional um, discoveries or, or points of emphasis. Um, I doubt we'd we diminish anything. I don't think there's anything there that was uh, that turned out. That it, you know, in terms of analytics and and approaches or screens or, or patterns. You know, I think I think the, the substantive content there remains durable. Uh, you know, there may have been a couple companies that, they've changed a lot. Um, you know, one of them merged out of existence. Uh, another another one um, struggled in in, in different ways. Some, some of them didn't have performed perfectly fine, but maybe not uh, as strongly as you might might have expected. But but for the most part, the case studies are even the case studies are remain instructive. So but I think I'd add, you know, to your point about share structure, I might want to just explore a little bit more the the, the issues around what, what what is the significance who of who the other shareholders are, what kind of powers and rights they have. Um, you know, what, how do you think about dual class structure yeah. and things like that? So I'd like, an, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like another, another crack at a book, at a book like that. And, um, you know, um, and could, could add uh, emphasis in some areas that uh, I think are, may, may, they've always been important, but for, for one another reason, we didn't, we didn't uh, dig, um, you know, too broadly into them, but, but um you know some of the intangible features of of corporate life, and uh, but you know we we wanted to keep it relatively compact and and relatively accessible and, and easier to read. So we kept it under a couple hundred pages. So yeah. I I don't think sitting here today I feel like you know if that if it, if it was me five years ago I'd have done all that much different. But but today I I'd like to uh, I'd like to add to it or continue to develop the themes and. Do you feel there's a risk in that perhaps there's now too many sort of investors chasing quality businesses? It, it just seems like in the last sort of three or five or seven years, there's been a, you know, this is anecdotal, but I guess there it seems to me that, that more and more sort of high profile investors are are talking in those, speaking in those terms. You know, I look like, I, I look at people like, um, you know, Howard Marks, I think, was the most recent example. You know, I, I get the sense that he's, you know, in one of his most recent memos, he, he's sort of saying, 
you know, valuation discipline isn't quite what it used to be. You know, I'm more interested in the quality of the business now. And I think people like Manish Pabrai have said similar things. Um, do you feel there's a risk there or that, does that sort of invalidate the, you know, the, uh, the opportunities in, in the quality sort of arena in any way? It's an excellent question, and I admire uh, Howard and Manish very, very greatly. Um, incidentally, Howard lives right down the street from me, where where we are. All right, slightly, slightly fancier house, but <laughs> but, but um, he he came out here during the pandemic too. Um, Fabulous. Those are yeah. nice neighbors to have. You know, I'm sure you you'd, you'd have a lot of interesting conversations about these these sorts of things. Yeah, I I talked to Howard. I also talked to his son Andrew. Um, who's also super intelligent, but I, th I think the point they're both making, you're making, is is fair. And a, a, a um, um, and I guess I'd have two observations. One one is that it, it remains what that cohort of investors do, even if they're all doing a similar thing, even if they're all hunting for quality and driving up premiums. Even even so, they're they're adding enormous value. Uh, to um, probably their own clients, their own wealth and society, yeah. be because they, they remain the vehicle that allocates abundant wealth, abundant resources. And, and you know, it's you know, compare that to the index funds, which they don't do anything yeah. uh, really for they just they just they just have automatic purchase and sales based on what everybody else has decided. And so, um, they have they command uh, abundant capital, maybe thirty percent of total U.S. equity at least. But it's Howard and Monish and and uh, you uh, and others, you know, who are who are actually doing the homework and determining, um, you know, how, how how much IBM or Tesla, you know, is is worth, and, and that then enters into the entire uh, eco economic system. So. Yeah, uh, the second point I'd, I'd make, yeah, and on, even within that, and then there are also obviously a lot of transient traders, whether they're doing, you know, computerized nanosecond trading or doing the court sort of craze, craze of the day on this meme stock or that name or this even crypto stuff. So, and and to me that that cohort isn't really adding significant value to the economic system. So. You know the likes of Howard and Monish, uh, you know, in some ways become even more important in that in that environment. But the second, so that's you know, for one thing, you know, I think e even if they were all doing the same thing, uh, they still had a lot of value. But you're right. The second point, the problem if, if they're all doing the same thing, then no one's going to get any particular opportunity. It's functionally arbitraging away the discovery of uh, the the payoff from a long term. Maybe it's a growth-oriented kind of um, approach, or you know, a quality approach. And to me, what that means is, this goes back to your first question: you know, is there are there any topics that I left left out of quality investing? You know, that's where the money is. Is what what else helps a company outperform? What what levers are we missing? And you know, the two that I've been very excited about in the past couple of years are one: who the other shareholders are, and if they've got a high density. Of Howard and Monish and Brian, uh, compared to the indexers or the transients, it, the the data I've been discovering is is that that that's a signal of outperformance of, yeah. of, of outperformance. So you know, hunting for those 
the you know the the new you know just undiscovered or underappreciated features of excellence or, or success. Yeah, uh, and so I think the quality of the shareholder base could be a a, 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 hunt, a profitable hunting ground. I think also these in, the intangible features of of uh, you know the stuff that Reed Hastings has written about about Netflix or um, you know that we we touch on in quality investing is the um, the, uh, the 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 Jim Collins type of thing about how things are done here. What's what's the culture? That, that's that's the idea. I've I've been involved in a lot of research around around corporate culture. It's a nebulous thing, and uh, you know a lot of re, a lot of investors you know don't like it because it's hard to measure. It's uh, subjective and so on. But I think there is real money there, and I I'd say you know if we're all if the cohort is have arbitraged away the the, the 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 key the 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 basic toolbox of the quality investing book, um, I'd I'd say uh, you know investigate the uh, the quality of the shareholder base, the internal culture of the firm, and and uh, you know additional screens or or tools in the kit uh, to to probe um, you know durable outperformance. Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like you're saying even if you're a quality-focused investor, you need to sort of continue. Uh, you need to sort of develop and evolve, and um, um, and you know, I guess one of the challenges I hear to the idea of quality investing is some people saying, <clears throat> "Fine, quality companies may outperform over time, but aren't you just asking yourself as a, an equally difficult question, which is how do you?" Um, you know, before the event, how do you identify those companies? Um, and as, I guess increasingly, some people say that's difficult because you have sort of shorter lifespans, you've you've increased disruption, whatever that means. Um, I mean, do you, do you agree with sort of sentiment that quality it may it may sort of work buying quality companies, but the, but it's you know it's still very difficult to identify them beforehand. Or do you think there are reliable ways of sort of pointing out these are quality businesses, you know, um, in advance, if you will? Well, I think what we try to lay out in, in quality investing was the um, a, a framework of, of pattern recognition, basically, that says it, it takes up the old idea of competitive advantage. Yeah. And what... Warren Buffett calls a moat uh, that the some some mechanism that makes it uh, a little harder for the business to be disrupted either from technological onslaught or rivalrous um, invasion and and the question is you know what are those competitive advantages and and everyone is familiar with a, a whole category of them whether it's brand strength or economies of scale network effects. Purchasing power, pricing power, um, rational rivals, uh, and then we and, and we had, we tried to delineate a, a number of additional uh, we call them the, the additional moats or, or uh, le um, features that that help uh, uh, a company sustain its advantage for. Uh, against onslaughts. So what we try to do, we, we delineated the, the long list and everybody, you know, there's abundant literature obviously on, on moats, 
But we then tried, tried to look at, at patterns where combinations of, of these competitive advantages seem to become, if not impenetrable, then, then you know, a, a mighty fortress uh, that just makes it extraordinarily likely that a, that a business will endure. And, and, and is that sort of, do you feel that it's harder to apply those uh, principles or tools I mean, there's a very, in a very general sense, a lot of investors keep talking, you know, or increasingly, I guess, talk about sort of sh short, shorter lifespans and increased disruption, et cetera. Do you think that's made it harder to identify these quality companies, be sort of, uh, or, 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 or is there still a sort of segment of the market where you can find them and where, where they still have these sort of very long-term competitive advantages? Yes, I I think it 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 I think it's always been been harder to um, reach definitive judgments than it is to recognize the the features or the tools because yeah. of the 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 competitive world in which we live where um, forces are always driving change whether whether from technology and surprising sources from surprising places that could disrupt a business you know like like the internet and newspapers. Um, uh, there was no plan on anybody's part to to kill small town newspapers, but it happened. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, obviously rivals are are endlessly trying to grab share or uh, or or at least expand their own their own business. And so being watchful of that uh, problem is, you know, as an investor, you got to watch these moats. Um, and I guess you know the insight that I've been studying a lot lately is is that it's more important to know. Uh, it's fine to know how thick a moat is, or you know, Mark Mobassens can offer some ways to measure. What's what's probably more important is is the, the direction, whether 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 it's like teeth, you know, or it's like your gums, you know, are they getting getting yeah. stronger? Or are they getting getting weaker? And that's yeah. something you can, you know, if Mark's right that you can measure it a bit, then you can also you can see it changing. And 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 it's the combination, right? It's 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 not economies of scale, period, or geographic reach, period, or brand power, period. It's all of them in combination. And then, you know, if you can, you can determine that the the, um, the the business is reinvesting in that mo in these in, in multiple directions, so that it's growing and strengthening uh, its 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 position, uh, you know, that enables a safer prediction of durable competitive advantage whereas if it's shrinking or if it's gotten pocked you know it's gotten hit in a couple of spots you know e even if it's still strong that's not a good direction <laughs> you no. know so um i and i guess that sort of you know i hear we i guess we've heard buffett referring to this so many times that you know he all he wants his sort of managers to be doing is to be widening the moat, really. So I guess it's sort of that that kind of idea, isn't it? Um, exactly. I, we take the take the energy business uh, there that they they have um, enormous advantages, sort of mini, mini monopolies, and and they've got enormous economies of scale. Uh, and they also have some uh, technical expertise, some. Some licenses, some regulatory licenses that they've, they've got a lot uh, of of power, of strength. But at the same time, they also know that world is changing in 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 very 
uh, in potentially surprising directions. And so the, the forms of uh, energy um, are changing and what's acceptable is changing. The, re the, the reliability of wind and solar, uh, geothermal. And, and so but what they're, what they're doing, what Greg Abel is doing at the energy business is, is building moats in the, by developing new uh, tools, new technologies, you know, being a leader in the industry, being a leader uh, in, in the political aspects of this. Uh, and so that's what he's doing every day is trying to build, you know, widen the moat, you know, being mindful that the, the existing moat may be under attack. Yeah. Uh, so it's shrinking, but he's, he's got to, he's got to thicken it elsewhere uh, for the, for the overall business. And so that's what he's doing every day. You know, I think at the other end of that company, you see, sees chocolates, sees candies, yeah. Uh, they're, they're protecting their, their existing, uh, um, mode is, is a d this distinctive brand with loyal customers, uh, and a certain look and feel, yeah. uh, and presence that's, that's very special in their, in their eyes. Uh, but that's, you know, people can be finicky in the chocolate business. Um, you know, it, it's ultimately, it's really about, uh, you know, a fundamental part is about, uh, about features other than that that elegant old-fashioned lady and you know, the, the the emotional association so you know what they're 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 trying to while preserving the what's what's special about that brand they're trying to be to new distribution systems trying on online airports uh, places beyond their their typical they have opened up stores and um, uh, New York and, and Miami and uh, so it, you know you you, you've got to do it. You can't just stand, you know, rest on your laurels. Say, oh, well, we've been in business a hundred years and everyone loves the little old lady candy. Yeah. You know, so, but you know, you can't go the other way. What, what Brad Kinsler, uh, prior CEO always said was, you know, I, I don't want to be sold like, you know, Stovar's candy in every drugstore in, in the country. Uh, that's not going to help my brand. I'm not going to, I don't want to be Russell, Russell Stovar, I guess it is. You know, I don't want to be a, a simple can. I'm going to be a special high end rare and hard to find. Well, that worked, but you know, but it's not, not forever. You know, So oh, how, do you, you know, how do you do that? So you're right. Warren's got his troops thinking moats every minute of every day. And, you know, if you measure, you know, C's moat, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's it was strong that it was under attack and but I think they're thickening it and I think it's in the right direction but you got to monitor it all the time <laughs> how, how would you know that's really interesting how would you define I know there's uh, you know in the in the sort of introduction there, there's um, you know there there's uh, three characteristics that indicate quality so cash generation returns on capital and, and growth opportunities but in I guess usually what we hear in the is the sort of uh, is value versus growth and and quality is a sort of slightly different dimension. Could you help? You know, how do you think about this? Um, you know, I, I guess growth is an element. Most of these quality companies, um, you know, have an element of, of meaningful growth to them. But how do you is to what extent is there overlap between sort of value growth on the one hand and quality on the other? Yeah, it's it's sort of like a Venn diagram, isn't it? That that value and growth mean different things to, in, in a lot of contexts and, and for a lot of people, yeah. but in in plenty of contexts they overlap. 
that Warren always said, Warren almost denies that there's a difference saying if you're trying to figure out the value of something, it's simply the present value of the discounted cash flows. And when you calculate those, you're going to be thinking, what's the growth rate? So, and obviously you're going to have a higher value, the higher the growth rate. So, uh, but that, you know, that's a that's a kind of a purist version of it. I think other other people think about the value investing as insisting on a, uh, a maximally thick margin of safety, a deep discount uh, between the price you're paying and the value you're getting. Um, and, and growth is is more uh, I'm 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 not hunting for those bargains. I'm hunting for the big payday. You know the ten baggers or something. You know next next year the the, the one after, and I, I think the quality investing Venn diagram is kind of well. The mindset is still hunting for value and, and being uh, you know, fundamental in orientation and, and and trying to identify in a conservative way the value it value you have. But uh, a little bit of the growth part is be, being willing to pay up when when you've got a a. a uh, a quality business that is one with a durable competitive advantage, that re- reliably um, uh, 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 determined. Uh, you don't you don't need to be uh, certainly not a Ben Graham or even a Warren Buffett. You you, you can pay up, uh, and and uh, so, you know so you know so so I think I think that that's kind of how I think about it. Is a quality investing is really a a hybrid, <laughs> if you yeah. want, um, yeah. of, of growth and value. Or takes you know Warren's insight at its most practical level. That yeah, it's actually the same style or philosophy. Um, but the the key thing is disciplined analysis and then a, a willingness to put your money where your mouth is and say this you know this is Unilever, this is Diageo, uh, this is Cone. Uh, this business will generate. Excess cash, higher returns on invested capital, and yeah. find new ways to deploy it. And so, and I'm going to buy it uh, at a fair price, and with the intention of holding it really, and until a, a, a clearly superior opportunity arises, or or until the moat really starts to turn. It seems to me that, in a way, quality businesses are never, you know, they're never really out of favor and they're never really in favor in the sense that you know when there's these turns in the market that they'll they'll never do as poorly as the low quality businesses on the way down they'll never do as well as the as the sort of fast growing or you know cyclical stuff on the way up so i mean i don't know if you do you have any thoughts around that it just seems like there's sort of i know it's the tired expression hiding in plain sight but to me it seems like there's an element of that you know they're not the fastest growing but you know, if I look at the case studies in in the book, um, you know, these would be maybe sort of four to eight or four four to ten percent organic growth businesses, bit of margin expansion. You know, t- sort of low to mid teens EPS growth in many cases, and but you know, over time that just sort of really delivers tremendous returns. Um, do Do you agree with that sort of description, or do you, or or are there times when these businesses really sort of uh, shoot the lights out? I think I think your I think your your general orientation is is right that the the the, the quality investing framework we describe is a, a long term uh, orientation and so the the goal is you know steady sustained earnings turn on invested capital that compounds so that 
you know, wealth just accumulates, you know, like as years go by and it's not trying to look for, uh, to, you know, and look, Amazon is a really interesting example. So I was going to say that took a long time. You know, that was a quality company, but you know, it took a really long time to prove that and then an even longer time to realize the value that was there. But any, someone who bought that stock, you know, in 2000 or 2004, they would have had to hold it through a lot of thick and thin and, and uh, you know, a lot of thin earnings. And, and but boy, uh, what a so I would say that as he built it, you know, as they made it clear that they knew how to dominate a sector, dominate an industry, and they put all the bookhouses, books, bookstores, you know, more or less out of business. And then they moved along to lots of other segments to do as publishing itself, you know, with Kindle. Uh, and then pioneering in in so many other applications now. Yeah. So, but it took a long time. It wasn't you know? Whereas like say, you know, Tesla, it's a little harder to see. I mean, he, he's been around, he's been at it a long time too. But the real the real um, uh, uh, pop, you know, has has been lately, and it's a little more speculative there. And so, uh, I, I I wouldn't be comfortable necessarily calling it a quality company at the moment. There's too many. Too many uncertainties and, and, and moving parts. Um, so, you know, I, I think your 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 but your the general sense is that flash is not uh, what the quality analyst is is really looking for. Uh, you know, it's looking for that um, that record of of sustained repeated return uh, through thick and thin. And so, you're right. Well, I think the data you mentioned about the case studies, and even just you, if you reeled off some of the names, th- these are venerable titans uh, for the most part, uh, and and that is the I think the pond with the bigger fish in it for the, for the quality uh, cohort. Uh, you know, the other the other aspect of that is you know some of the um, features can can be intangibles, and intangible features are often fleeting, and and so what works um, in one period might fail the next. So having repeated environment, you know, different environments to test the strength of a culture and, and its, and its adaptability as, as the world changes um, is, is helpful to, to, you know, obtain the assurance uh, of the durability of, of, of the business. Um, you know, and you, you take, uh, 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 take take Unilever. I mean, they 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 need they they go through lots of different cycles, economic cycles, geographic changes, conflicts. Um, uh, you know, product um, it, uh, consumers embracing the product, consumers doubting the product, and and being nimble enough to navigate all that through all that adversity and and maintain overall the 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 the, the solid economic performance. Sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, but to, as you say, be able—you're not shooting the lights out, but nor are you shooting yourself in the foot a lot, you know. So, yeah. I think I think you're right about that. There is a certain, and, and but this doesn't necessarily narrow it down. There are thousands of companies that are potentially uh, uh, in this in this universe. So, can I just uh, ask you about? What sort of, in your in your view, what sort of enables these quality companies to outperform? I guess you know, in principle, that you know that quality should be reflected in valuations. But then, 
if I look at it, I, you know, I, to me, it looks like there's all these institutional factors such as time horizons, you know, this belief in mean reversion, maybe partly accounting rules and how they treat sort of investments in, in non-tangible assets, if you will, et cetera. Do you have, do you have a list of things that in your, in your view sort of explain, <clears throat> sorry, the, the re, the sort of why these companies you know, why their valuations don't fully reflect the quality of the businesses. Well, yeah, the, the, the sort of hidden hidden assets or, or, or hidden value is the category. And you, you've identified three nice ones. And, um, you know, they're, for a long time, um, ownership of real estate had been underappreciated, mainly because accounting rules, I guess, and also so sometimes it simply wasn't deployed in the optimal way. And um, and so you had um, restaurants or movie theaters, uh, 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 businesses that that owned a lot of real estate, but had been valued based on, you know, food sales or ticket box office. And, and in fact, that they were worth a lot more if you counted the real estate. And people unlocked that value doing sale leaseback transactions and, and other other techniques to, to monetize that, that hidden value. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's probably the broad category and it probably, um, that's the general pattern. And so if you can, uh, you, you, you find that, um, that, that asset that's, you know, not a gap asset, it's not an accounting asset. Um, and, and, you know, you, you're, you're trying to figure out, well, why are there um, superior returns on invested capital here? What's, what's going on? And, and I think that uh, so accounting conventions generally can obscure that economic reality. Uh, you know, you mentioned the whole category of intangible assets. I mean, I think that's really the big one. And obviously, so, some of them are more obvious than others, like technology in a, in a, in a software company or the, the, the know-how to write, uh, you know, code that is uh, customers em embrace, that's, that's mission critical. You know, there's a whole wealth of value that you know doesn't show up on a on a balance sheet um you know and and, and many i think many many quite a few of the moats or the advantages that we review uh wouldn't show up um on a on a balance sheet and some some of them are really important just like the the rationality of your rivals you know so semi you know oligopolistic um industries uh you know, there are just three, three or four um, rivals. So I say the uniform business. I don't, I don't think we give this example, but there's just three or four companies that do um, employee uniform rentals in, in the United States. So they've got some pricing power. They've got some brand loyalty. They got recurring revenue because the the, the um, contracts are usually multi-year, and, um, and you can expect that they're not going to. They're going to be responsible competitors. They're, they're, they're not going to try to drive price to zero uh, <clears throat> and drive the industry into the ground. Like, you know, happens in, in other industries like soap detergent. I think we give that example in the book or, or beverages. And so uh, and that would be hidden. That, that doesn't show up on a balance sheet anywhere. It requires the analyst to conduct a little industrial organization study about market share and, 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 and um, substitute goods and, and, and things like that. Um, and so, um, another one, so interesting one would be, I think you mentioned this sort of regulatory licenses that, uh, and these, these can be implicit, you know, explicit, um, 
uh, like the accounting firms uh, in the United States, at least uh, the uh, the larger firms are uh, recognized and registered with the PCAOB, and they basically are the the only firms that are capable of auditing the vast majority of the largest companies, and so they have a, a, a license in effect. Um, uh, they also have moats around reputational value and and, and so on. But th that's a that's a very high quality business, uh, the, the attestation business for for auditing. But sometimes a little more hidden, like take um, bond rating agency. There's not exactly a requirement that issues of bonds be rated or that a a company has to have a rating of its debt debt capacity or a university needs a rating for its bonds. But there's a functional requirement. The market, um, in effect, demands it. And the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, um, in effect, grants licenses to these organizations by saying that designating them as recognized statistical rating agencies. And, and, and that has an issuer who gets a rating, gets significant advantages, regulatory advantages. And since these two or three are the only ones that have the the, the the recognition that that's 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 a license. It's hard to get. It's it's hard for a rival. You know, it's funny S and P and Moody's really own that market, but Fitch managed to come in and with some niche uh, focused products. Um, you know, it's managed to get a little share, but not not a ton. And you know, and and um, yeah, so it just goes to to show. Uh, but. Uh, and, and then there, you know, there are other attestation businesses like that where a, a big, a big part of the economic payoff is that special position. Mm -hmm. uh, just it's a barrier. It's hard, hard for a rival to enter. It's, it's hard to imagine a, an alternative certification mechanism that would that would kill it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we might eventually get some <clears throat> automated debt rating capabilities that would put the analysts at S and P and Moody's out of business, but. I think those firms are are front and center enough that they would be able to pivot uh, rapidly from the human judgment to the automated or AI approach. So, um, but you're you're absolutely right. So, I, I think there's a list, uh, as you say, of um, uh, fact, you know, hit sources of of hide. You know, what 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 sorts of things might hide uh, the value and, and you know, obviously, it's going to come up that you're going to have high sustained returns on invested capital. People are going to want to know well, how did you do that, um, and then you hunt for it. Um, you know, everyone's hunting; it, it will be discovered, and you'll get high high values. But in the meantime, a lot of a lot of returns can be generated. And do you find that these quality companies are? I know the focus of this. I guess in the book, most of the case studies are European companies because of ARCO's sort of focus on Europe. But um, do you find there's a certain, um, would they tend to be found in certain sectors or geographies or even in terms of market caps? And has that shifted? You know, I guess consumer goods 10 years ago, most people would probably have agreed that was a real sort of place to look for quality businesses. And now a lot of people aren't so sure, you know, there seems to be so many sort of threats to them. I mean, do you find that you still find the quality companies in a few sectors and parts of the world, or is it pretty, could, could you find them anywhere? I think, I think they, in, in theory, 
there, there is um, uh, this sort of business should uh, appear in any um, sector, in any geography, in any time in history. I, I think the the reason for our focus in that book, you're exactly right, that Akko's, um <clears throat> and it's really it's really their circle of confidence. And I guess the one that I shared with them is you know lar larger um, Western companies. So you know yeah. Europe in particular. Um, and we had a um, you know pretty strong, I guess, if you like, bias. But as as we did that, and and there, you know, that was the fund that they were running was a, a European fund, and that that's where all the learnings came from, and and was really what they wanted to describe. But yeah. as as we did it, I I had kind of a parallel uh, project around what are the twenty U.S. based companies that look like this, and uh, and they, you know, they. I, I, you may be right that they, well, they congregate in terms of size. I think they, they, these tended to be larger, <clears throat> larger companies. Do you want to share? I mean, you don't have to, of course. Do you want to share any of the names just to get us? Uh, I don't. I have that list. I'd have to go back and and look at. It. It's been such a while. But it was, uh, you know, and you know, it's funny too that that just sitting here thinking about it. The, um, it it also. Um, these these are these are dynamic companies in the sense that they in, in the past in the past five years they've they've you know pivoted and done interesting things. United Technologies I think was one 3M right uh, was one um, I I think we had Procter and Gamble on there right uh, I actually know. spoke to them yesterday yeah that's been oh, an interesting story yeah. Yeah, so you know uh, those are the three that came to mind, and I think um, we might have had Honeywell, um, okay, and Otis Elevator. I think obviously well, that's a wonderful business. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and that well, let's see. That, that, I guess that was um, part part of United Technologies, and and they mm -hmm. also had the uh, the air conditioning business. Um, yeah, and 3M. I think you know 3M is really, and uh, I think they've continued to manage. You know, successfully and with it's a very innovative culture. A lot of engineers, um, uh, you know, a lot of patents. So they, they've got. I mean, that's a really nice and tangible. There's, you know, you've got. They own lots of patents. Um, you know, they've got Scotch tape and Post-it notes and all kinds of stuff. And it's some of those those patents expire, but the culture is all about invention, innovation, and and you know, the teams of researchers and. One of the great things is in a in a in a culture like that is you, you, they the goal may be to solve a particular problem, but so often in the pursuit you discover solutions that you had no you were not hunting for, and, and that so that just has enormous if you like hidden value, you know, at a firm like that. So, um, but I think you're right. So I I think that you would find these companies in North America, and I think you'd find them all across Asia. Uh, you know, the exact combination of features might change a little in the environment just because of history. Um, you know, just the, the, the a, a technology focused in some Asian markets, a consumer focus maybe in, in U.S. markets. Um, you know, and going back to my other point about the future, about ownership structures that differ so much in um, in the U.S., a, a uh, you know, it's heavy equity and even a lot of individual ownership and a lot of indexers, you know, in Japanese and Korea, Korean 
markets, there's much more cross ownership among industrial and financial institutions in Europe. You have um, greater involvement of banks on both the debt and, and the equity side. And then in some individual countries, you've got a lot of family ownership alongside the equity, the institutions, and you know, especially in Italy, um, but even in Germany, some very old family companies. And so, so I think, you know, as you're, as you're trying to identify, uh, you know, what, what's the advantage at, um, you know, at, at Pirelli or at um, uh, Alfa Romeo or Porsche, or, you know, some, some of it's going to be to do with the, the regions, you know, the, 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 the culture where they operate. Uh, uh, and that can come about from a lot of different perspectives. So I think our book, if, if we, we wrote the same book about uh, Asia or the U.S., I, I do think some of the content, some of the, the, the flavor of, of, the, of the companies and, and how they sustain an advantage would, would be different. So one of my um, frustrations, if you will, is that when I, when I look for quality businesses, I end up mainly in large or mega cap businesses because it seems to me that almost by definition, if they're great business, if they if they're if they've proven themselves to be great businesses, they're already of a certain size, um, etc. I mean, do you do you agree with that, or do you think it's is it possible to identify, you know, small cap quality comp? Well, I'm sure it's possible, but is that do you think that's a viable sort of strategy, or is that just much harder finding these quality businesses when they're small? No, you 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 absolutely can. I mean, I think um, you know some that I've stumbled on recently. Uh, um, Amph here here in the U.S. Um, Amphenol, which does electronics and sensors and switchers, they've they've been around a long time. Uh, they they are uh number three in many of their markets are number two and these are oligopolistic markets require a lot of science a lot of engineering a lot of intangibles uh and and uh, and and they do very well and it's not and, and they they do well in a lot of the things um you know in terms of the moats the durability the, the longevity they've been around at, at least 80 years 60 years or something like that Right. But they're still, yeah, still a moderate, moderate, I, I forget the exact market cap, but, you know, modest overall. Another one, I, I mentioned that um, uniform industry, uniform rental industry, it's a company called, I think it's called Una First, mm -hmm. uh, First Una. It's, okay. it's one of th three and um, market cap, you know, it's relatively small. I don't have the figures off, off the top of my head. Yeah, I think you can. There are some companies that, um, you know, because they they're focused on a particular niche, and that market is only so big, and it's not it's not going to you know you're not going to sell, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know. So it it you know, and it might might grow a little, but but it's it's not you know you're not turning into a giant. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I do think, and it might just, it might just be that you're better off hunting in that smaller space because they're, you know, the armies of private equity and, and analysts and, and, and big, 
big money is is not as focused. You see, you might find some some opportunities. Moreover, you know, it might be easier to get a chance to speak with the CEO and really get the measure of the jib, you know, to see if they really seem what they what they, they are and they if they if they turn you know in person <laughs> confirm your your you know uh, external view that that they are something special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm doing a lot of work on that right now. I mean, you mentioned the Quality Shareholders Initiative. The way I'm finding these companies that that could be in a quality investing book for the U.S. is I'm, I'm looking at their ownership and I'm seeing a lot of you know, per- medium or small, even smaller businesses that that fit this model uh, and I'm, I'm stumbling upon them or reaching them be, because of their ownership that, you know, the, the Howard Marks and, and Monishas of, of the world have noticed it. <laughs> it's a great company. Uh, and, it's, and it's still, and a lot of them are even still reasonably priced uh, so that uh, I would call them quality opportunities. I, there are a bunch of them. I'm, I'm still doing the work, so I can't, you know, but I've dribbled about occasionally. I write a column in Market Watch, and every once in a while, I'll, I'll mention a few of this sort. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I know we're, so we're, we're, I just have sort of two final questions for you. Um, I guess one, just briefly on this idea of downside protection, which I just wanted to hear if you have any thoughts on how that sort of ties into quality investing. You know, it seems to me that a lot of the, the qualities in these quality businesses are are really about sort of reducing the downside. But I mean, is that an important element of it, or 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 is it no different from from any any other sort of di- discipline or school of investing? Yeah, I th- I think that downside capture is is a is a a rationale for a, a focus of this sort, and obviously it becomes critical during a. Um, economic downturn or market reversal and while we we haven't seen that on scale in 12 or 13 years and it hadn't been seven before that mm-hmm. uh, they do happen and so being prepared for it is not a bad idea and i do think this sort of analysis and this philosophy this approach um offers a, a great advantage in that setting and uh and because it also is a perfectly prosperous one during expansionary periods, um, it, it seems like a very uh, practical and sensible approach uh, to me. You know, one that, that, as they always like to say, that, that you, don't, you don't stay up all night worrying about things. You know, yeah. you're not worried about Dogecoin, you know, nosediving or this SPAC finding a partner. You're, you're counting on soap being sold in Indonesia. <laughs> Indeed, um, and do you have any do you have any sort of examples you'd like to mention of, of quality investors today? You know, I guess some of them we, you know, I love people like Tom Russo or Tom Gaynor in the U.S. I guess in the U.K. we have people like Nick, like Nick Train and Terry Smith. Um, but do you have any do you have any other ones that you'd like to highlight that are good sort of ambassadors of this of school? Yeah, I think in the UK, I'd I'd nominate Bailey Gifford, right, based in Scotland. I, I think they're a pretty sizable firm with a diverse uh, mix, but but very focused, uh, very focused on quality, um, very long term. Uh, 
uh, engaged. Uh, some might say they're too long-term. They, 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 they have sometimes said we're, we're just going to hold forever. Yeah. And, you know, some other funds prefer a little sell discipline on there, but Bailey Gifford, I think, I think it's an excellent firm and, and Fundsmith, I think is, is an excellent example too. Uh, in the U S I admire Brandis investment partners out uh, from San Diego. Um, right. Excellent firm. There's a, a, a couple others I really am getting in. I've been involved with um, who so I admire them even at a closer uh, proximity. Um, Epic, it's spelled E O E P O C H, but I think they spell it Epic. I saw uh, that. Yeah, I saw that a very interesting paper on on the PE ratio from them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, very, that's a very smart group. It's um. Uh, it's a subsidiary of TD Ameritrade, I think the uh, you know the Canadian bank they bought it about 20 years ago. The firm's much older. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is um, WCM out of uh, Laguna Beach, right south of LA. Phil Black is the uh, one of the head guys. There's a lot of great great people, and uh, very very uh, they they could have. Uh, they love the quality investing book. Let's put it that way. And they, they, they do, they do deep dives around these, these sorts of things and they've grown rapid. They've just been phenomenally successful lately. And, um, and those are all big. I think that they're 90 billion now or something like that. Um, But it is funny, you know, a lot of the quality cohort, Tend to be more the Russo size, sort of 20, 30 billion. And if um, Epic is, is 30, uh, when when you, you start to get too big, it's harder to do this. But you know, uh, Bailey Gifford's doing it, WCM's doing it. So I, I think you can, but I think you just you get more institutional pressure that, you know, kind of reverts to the mean and you get closet indexing and. But but so far those firms we mentioned have have grown and 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 stuck to their knitting. So uh, I I think you know and then you you got capital research. I mean they're they're huge and Wellington, um, uh, uh, Fidelity has has a lot of this Franklin funds. Um, so you you it 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 can be done. No, that's a that's that's a wonderful list. Uh, just finally, can we anticipate any sort of extension of this uh, work you know uh, could, you know it, will there be another quality investing book on based on sort of the u.s market as you touched on or will there be an update to the to the sort of aco one or any any other variation my wife always jokes I, I just i can't stop writing and 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 analyzing and so i've got quite a few um research nodes uh underway and in progress that that will result in a book um, and, and probably some articles on the way, uh, including of the sort that you just described. So I don't know exactly what the shape will be, but uh, the answer is absolutely yes. <laughs> that's great. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. I look forward. To, I look forward very much to that. Well, that's perfect. I thank you very much. Super. No, I, I'm I'm thankful. Um, thank you so much again. Great, great to speak to you. All the best now. Likewise. Cheers. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. 
Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze. And for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren. And until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.